Hey guys, welcome to the show. Now, today I have Dr. Jason Horlick on, and he's going to talk about the microbiome. I was really excited to get him on uh, because, you know, as many of you know, I have been looking into the microbiome for most of this year uh, and really just looking for what it can offer to us as a method of treatment. You know, is it, uh, is it a root cause to things that people are dealing with? Now, Dr. Horlack has 20 years of experience as a researcher and a clinician helping people recover from a variety of different conditions using the microbiome. Uh, so he's helped kids with autism. He's helped people with chronic gut conditions like ulcerative colitis. He's helped depression, anxiety, autoimmune diseases, and just a lot more things. So this is a guy who really has uh, his feet on the ground and he's helping people in the field. Now, in the interview, I asked a lot of questions. <laughs> and sometimes those questions were a bit all over the place. But I, I do think I gained more knowledge about the microbiome from this interview than any other one. But because those questions were kind of all over the place, uh, in the conclusion, I'm going to have a summary of the interview and kind of bring it all together in a way that I think makes sense. Uh, because there were some serious deep insights here, but we might have sped by some of them. Enjoy the interview. Dr. Jason Horlick, welcome to the show, man. Hey, um, you, yeah, thanks. I'm glad to be here. So you are coming all the way from Tanzania, right? Close. Tas Tasmania, Australia. It's where the little island state that hangs down the southern, southeast coast of um, Australia. And Tasmanians generally see themselves as being separate from the rest of Australia. So we're, they're, they're the mainlanders and we're, we're, we're Tasmanians. Wow. All right. So uh, today we're going to talk about the microbiome. And so let's start off by, uh, why, don't, why don't you tell the audience about what it is you do and how you became interested in the microbiome? Yeah, I wear a few different hats, I suppose. Um, like I finished my training as a naturopathic clinician um, in 1999. Um, and at that point, I essentially decided to, to pursue a research path. And and that was inspired by a lecture given to me by one of my, who later became my PhD supervisor, but one of my lecturers at university around gut dysbiosis and its link to other chronic diseases. So this was back in 1999, so well and truly before it was, you know, a hot topic <laughs> that everyone was talking about. You know, there was naturopaths talking about it, and it had been for a long time, and integrative um, medical practitioners, for example, and then some very, you know, core microbiome researchers, um, you know, a couple handful around the world at that at that juncture of time. Um, I, yeah, but the lecture just really inspired me, so I approached him right after the lecture and get, you know, I know my, my undergraduate degree is coming to an end. I really want to... Um, research this area. I really want to expand the the knowledge base that's 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 growing. Um, so I went on to do my honors degree, which in Australia is a research based degree, and then my PhD flowed on from there. So we we did my honors degree. We did our, my first clinical trial looking at changing the microbiome of patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So we were using prebiotics, probiotics, and herbal medicines um, as a way of changing the gut ecosystem. And we chose IBS because at that time it was probably the best, or had the most evidence for an altered gut ecosystem in a disease state. 
and now we're linking dysbiosis with everything, but back then there wasn't a huge amount of, of research around dysbiosis and its role in, in different disease states, but there was in IBS, so hence why we chose that topic, and then my PhD flowed on from that. So since that time, I've, I've essentially tried to maintain you know, a foot in the, the, the clinician camp, so I, I've been a clinician for, for 20 years, and, and I've been doing research for that whole whole time too, often on at different time, time points from doing, you know, more paper-based research like systematic reviews to doing, you know, clinical trials and other types of study designs um, to education as, as well, where I'm edu educating other health practitioners. And that's, those three hats are, are still what I wear now, which makes my week very varied <laughs> in terms of today is my clinician, today is a researcher, today is my educator hat. And they, they flow together really well, but it, it means a very varied um work week which actually suits me well yeah so did you ever have a like personal issue with the microbiome or was it always from like a research and like a doctor's perspective yeah it's a good question i mean not not directly no you know for me my health issues were around asthma and hay fever you know um and i can look back in time and go okay well that there's obviously a microbiome link there and you know my asthma developed after like my third course of antibiotics for a viral infection when I was three <laughs> so you know I could like yes I can see that now but it certainly wasn't that that straightforward at the time I was just really inspired by by the topic and it wasn't because you know I had personal gut issues in fact I'd say my gut is one of the strong areas of, of my my body um, and but but since my research delving into that area of my clinical practice has been mostly around gut and you know for the last decade i'd say like 95 percent of my patient load is is more directly gut related because you know these days you could argue that you know depression anxiety menopause you know almost any condition you can list has got a gut health and gut microbiome connection but um you know most of my patients also colitis IBS, SIBO, peptic ulcer disease, you know, in that more true gut realm, but there are flow on effects, you know, like, um, I'm seeing like lots of uh, autistic children more recently, for example, um, where there's a, a core microbiome, um, connection. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing how many things are attached to the gut. I mean, when I worked in a health food store, there was this saying, you know, it all starts in the gut and it was kind of like this belief that, you know, if you didn't get your gut fixed, it was really hard to fix anything else. Have you found that to be true? Yeah. <laughs> and that is an old, like very old concept. You go back to like, you know, Hippocrates, I think was saying similar things, you know, and we as naturopaths tend to see ourselves as, you know, flow on coming from, you know, the teaching of Hippocrates back in the day. Um, and that's always been a core thing for naturopathic clinicians is, is this, the, the importance of gut health. Um, and even, you know, we were talking, like, I've got some older co senior colleagues uh, who have been naturopaths since the 1980s, and they were taught about dysbiosis and its role in, in, in chronic ill health back then, you know, and that was well and truly before the, the microbiome boom and, and well before we had much research and, and the access to tools to, to work on how to, how to define dysbiosis particularly well. But the discussion was still around that point about the importance of gut health for pretty much every other sort of chronic health condition. And I think research, if anything, has really borne that out in the last 20 to 30 years. So uh, a lot of times the advice you will hear in a health food store is like, you know, take lactobacillus, take bifido, you know, and, and it's not, it's not that complicated, but 
it seems like you are someone who has a handle on, at least maybe broadly speaking, of what the good stuff is and what the bad stuff is outside of those really basic categories. So this this might be, I don't know, a bit of a broad question, but when you treat someone, where are you trying to get them to? Like, where are you trying to move their microbiome to? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that there's still some debate and discussion amongst researchers on, on what exactly a you know perfect, super healthy microbiome is. Um, for me, there's a few aspects that have come through in the literature, and I'd say as, as you know, 20 years of working as a clinician in this area as well, um, we're looking for diversity, you know, um, but within that diversity score, there's, there's two things we look at. We look at the evenness or the spread of bacteria. You know, we don't want an ecosystem that's too dominated by one species. You know, I like to illustrate this um, to my patients. I tell them about an example of, let's say, you've got an acre of rainforest or an acre of, of any sort of forest, and you've got, let's say, you had 160 species in that forest. It sounds species rich, it is. But if 90% of those trees or 80% of those trees are, you know, one type of pine tree or in Tasmania, we go, you know, blue blue, um, blue gums, like a type of one type of eucalyptus, it's going to look like a plantation. It's not going to be a really healthy ecosystem. And those are the things we look at. We're looking at the number of species that are present. We're looking at the spread. So you're not too dominated by one or two species. So those are, those are key things I look at. But then I'm also looking at healthy levels of what we generally would refer to as beneficial bacteria and low levels of what we call pathobionts or and pathogens. Now, pathobionts are species, I mean, people are generally familiar with the word pathogen, which is, you know, disease causing, but there's a range of bacteria in our gut we call pathobionts that when present in too high amounts are problematic and cause harm. And a lot of, of ecosystem work at least that I do, is, is focusing on decreasing levels of those pathobionts. So you don't want to eliminate them. They're not bad, they're horrible to have at all. It's just that when their population is too high or in the wrong location, they cause harm. And that can be just in the level of inflammation or gut damage, um, releasing you know, pro-inflammatory mediators that then impact your, the, whole, the whole body functions, for example. So a lot of work is, is on trying to, working within those those that's that structural hierarchy of going okay well how can we improve diversity how can we improve diver um evenness how can we increase levels of beneficial bacteria and decrease levels of pathobionts and so when you say pathobionts are you talking about like e coli or yeah e coli would fit that that bill um hydrogen sulfide gas producers would probably fit that bill too um a classic one would be Methanobrevibacter smithii, so, which is a key methane-producing microbe in your gut. And it's an interesting microbe because it eats hydrogen gas. And it, it, it essentially grabs four big bulky hydrogens and shrinks it down into one little dense methane. And by doing so, it can actually help reduce gas-related distension from eating fermentable fibers. That's a good thing. But when there's too much of it, that methane actually slows down gut transit time and slows down and can cause things like constipation and allow that gas to build up. <laughs> so that's a classic example of pathobiont that in the right amount is very healthful for us, you know, because if we don't have that microbe, there's problems. You know, and the research shows that if we're lacking methanobrevibacter completely, we're very prone to bloating and distension because that hydrogen gas in these people can often just stay as hydrogen gas and you get is, you know, a huge amount of volume is gas in your gut that doesn't get processed through it a different sort of pathway. But when you have too much, it actually slows down. And, and, and for many of my patients, it's a key driver of, of constipation or slow transit time 
And slow transit time is, can often be a bit more hidden because you might still be doing you know one bowel movement a day, but you might have this huge amount of feces that's loaded up in your, your colon, despite the fact you're pooing once a day. And that can allow you to, one, you get that sort of more gas build up too. You can get, you know, griping, cramping pain, but, but on top of that, you're actually reabsorbing compounds from that fecal matter. And, you know, the, the, to put this in the extreme end, one of my patients, um, I had to do a very simple thing of just having them eat some corn on the cob or some red quinoa, black quinoa, black rice. Don't chew that well. You know, write down when they eat it. And then they watch for when it starts coming into the toilet bowl and when it finishes. And this gives us a rough idea of bowel transit time. And you can do it in hospital settings with you know, radioactive probes and get a much more accurate result. But this is a nice, cheap, easy way of getting a feel for how quick or slow that process is. And I've had one patient who was doing a bowel mode every couple of days. You know, probably three bad movements per week, but it was 26 days before the corn and the cob came out wow. the other end. You know, and that just shows how much fecal backup she was having, <laughs> and why she was feeling fatigued, depressed. You know, um, because days. we know that this metabolic 26 days. I know you, you wouldn't even think that's possible um, unless until you do tests like this. <laughs> and there's another patient who did a poo every single day, never missed a day. You know, so you, you if, if that's all you're you're basing it on is okay, you, you never miss a day, you must have good transit time. You're mistaken. Her it was ten days. Ten days for that corn to come out the other end. You know, yet she doesn't meet the definition of constipated because she's doing more than three bowel movements per week. You know, it's she was doing one every single day, but she still had slow transit time. And that slow transit time was essentially causing uh, increased absorption of you know, compounds from her poo that didn't make her feel that well or giving headaches and fatigue. Um, and once we sped up that transit time, she started feeling much better in so many ways, not just gut, but, but more broadly. Wow, that's kind of blowing my mind right now because you always hear, you know, oh, if you're constipated, you know, you're constipated. But if you're going every day, you know, you're fine. But you're saying that Basically, yeah. even if you're going every day, you this one guy had a 26 day transit time. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. That's that's nuts. Yeah, yeah, I know. And you, it, it is crazy. And, and once I started doing this with every single one of my patients, you you get a <laughs> you learn a lot more about how their gut is actually functioning that you don't get solely from just looking at their bowel bowel movement picture like certainly if they're only pooing you know once every two or three days you know that they're constipated they meet that strict medical definition but you it's just that there are people that don't fit that who still have that slow transit time that that is impacting on their quality of life dramatically in many cases but it's not so obvious because their their bowels are not constipated from a in a typical medical definition yeah so would you say this is the most common problem you deal with or is there something else that you see quite a bit of Oh, listen, this is pretty common <laughs> in my patients, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of my patient load is is irritable bowel syndrome, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth type patients. Um, so having this high level of methane is often a contributor to that slow transit time. You know, so that sort of picture, that level of pathobiont that I flagged before um, is pretty common in, in that that patient. Okay, so how, load that I, that I, makes it the bulk of my practice currently. So, how difficult is the microbiome to change in general? I mean, is it is it very difficult to change, or is it kind of easy? I'd say it's actually easy, <laughs> if if like we know that that there are there are medications like antibiotics and proton pump inhibitors that can cause very dramatic shifts, you know, in, in gut ecosystems and massive changes in loss of of 
um, species richness, for example, and, and big changes in evenness and spread, as well as actual you know extinction level events, um, major changes in beneficial bacteria, pathobionts, etc. But you can also the opposite can be the case too, in that that changes in diet, um, the use of prebiotics can actually cause massive shifts to ecosystems as well in a much more beneficial way than what you would tend to get with 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 antibiotic classes. Um, and, and it can happen relatively quickly as well, you know. Um, and, and one population group that I've been working with more more recently was with kids on, on the spectrum. And I've been amazed at how flexible their ecosystem is compared to the, the typical population where, yeah, it changes, but not nearly as quickly and not nearly as dramatically as what it, it's been working with some of these kids on the spectrum. But that said, you can make dramatic shifts in ecosystems, you know, within one to two months with changes in diet, changes in lifestyle, and with prebiotic supplements. Absolutely massive. Um, if all you're doing is eating some fermented foods and taking a lactobacillus-based probiotic, the changes are going to be very mild. You, know, you might just have a few more species show up on your on the bottom of your list <laughs> when you do a gut microbiome assessment. Um, maybe a small tweak at the top in terms of some things like bacteroides, for example, that might be more... Um, come down a little bit when you eat some foods like that but the changes will be very mild in comparison to making a dramatic change in diet or using prebiotics so you mentioned a microbiome test does somebody have to do one of those tests to really know what they're doing or they can can they kind of make changes and go by feel i think it depends on the person and what's going on for them i mean i think for those people who just want to optimize their health i mean if you've got the funds it's not that expensive these days to do it and you're very curious sure i think it's worth doing but the reality is that you know what, what we're trying to if you just implement you know eating mostly plants you know avoiding processed foods eating like a rainbow of colors you know um a the broadest diversity of plants possible you will enhance diversity you will enhance richness you will improve levels of beneficial bacteria and you will decrease pathobionts from that you know across mm -hmm. the board it's just that we're certain people with different disease states we might want to fine-tune things or how things work work quickly or they might be in a situation where we have to do preliminary work first before you can do those the dietary changes and or prebiotics that that will make those beneficial shifts because they'll cause you know, worsening symptoms. And, and like that mention of meth methane overproduction is probably key here too, that sometimes if we just go, okay, um, if we didn't know that their bowel transit time was immensely slow and we go, okay, well, let's start eating this higher fiber, you know, um, more, more plant-based diet and take these prebiotic supplements because these things will improve the health of the ecosystem. They will, but it, they will certainly worsen bloating, worsen distension, and sometimes cases worsen constipation. In, in those people that have an overproduction of methane already to start with. And by doing some either breath testing or in some cases or microbiome assessment, we can actually have a look and we can fine tune how we make the changes, what we start with first, or we might decide that we need to bring that methane production down first before we can then make the, the broader dietary changes that, that will shift the, the whole ecosystem in beneficial ways. What is your uh, go-to for the methane producing bacteria? Mm. Yeah, there's a few things. Um, there's a, a probiotic, um, Blackpills Reuteri DSM17938, um, catchy name, that we know can decrease methane overproduction. 
in the small bowel or the, the colon. Um, there's partially hydrolyzed guar gum, which is a prebiotic fiber, which again can decrease uh, methane overproduction in the colon. And then there are often herbal medicines I'll use on top of that to, to drive that change. And there's a range of herbal medicines that um, have got the capacity to decrease that, that methane overproduction from things like garlic um, to you know pomegranate husk to you know, clove, oregano, thyme, and more. Which uh, companies do you like for the microbiome tests? Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm, I've, I start off with Ubiome, which don't exist now, but they were great. And they were the first one that made it affordable, you know, and made it so everybody could access their microbiome data if they wanted to. Um, and then I've, I've moved on to Thrive because that was the next similar similar technology and similar price point. Uh, now I've, I'm leaning towards Cosmos ID, which is a US-based lab in Maryland who uses metagenomic sequencing and you get a, a, a bunch truckload of data <laughs> strain level stuff like they can even show you that if you're taking lactose rhamnosus gg as a probiotic that will show up as that strain in your um test results which i think is very cool um plus they tell you about fungi plus they tell you about protozoal species that are present so you get a much more comprehensive overview of what's there in fine detail um as well you know so that i'd say is my preferred lab at the yeah, moment is it a little bit pricier than thrive yeah, you're looking at around 300 US dollars per test versus Thrive with that, you know, per, their perennial discount codes, it's around 100 US dollars. So, you know, three times the price. So I'm still using Thrive in patients where I don't necessarily think I need that level of extra data um, and or they're, they're more financially challenged. And we want to do lots of follow-up. You know, if I want to follow up every month, I'll to go with Thrive. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like affordable, whereas, you know, $300 every month or two adds up pretty relatively quickly particularly because they're they're already taking medicines and they're often unwell and they're doing lots of other things mm. so you know i think there's a few things i take into to account and i'm preserving the cosmos id for when i want to look at the protozoal and fungi and look a little bit more deeper level looking at species level information versus thrive we get a good overview of genus level data phylal level information and most of our research around gut health and disease associations is at the, the species or sorry at the genus level and the phyla level anyway. So I think there's there's more than enough to work with 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 a company like Thrive's results anyway. Or um, you know, Biome site in the UK or there's a few labs, like my microzoo in, in Europe that that I work with with patients depending on where they are in the world, um, that use 16S techniques which give us accurate genus level data. I see. So I was actually introduced to your work uh, on a microbiome website you know, I, where you put your data in and all that stuff. And so it let me see, you know, what bacteria I had and, and the balance therein. And there was this section on the site with your name on it and several different bacteria that you had hand selected as important in some way or another. So I want to ask you about how you selected those bacteria. Uh, before that, though, I'll just read off this list, uh, if, I, if I can pronounce these. Uh, Bacteroidea? Acromantia, Bactroides, Bifidobacterium, Blaudia, Disulfovibrio, Eucobacterium. Anyway, there's this list. So how, how did you choose this list of, of bacteria? Well, some of it was were limited by what we know about the microbiome at, at any given time point. You know, and as someone who's been researching this for, for 20 years, it's like our knowledge has expanded dramatically 
you know, you go back 15 years ago, we didn't know what acromantia was. We didn't know what fecalibacterium was, let alone the fact that they played key roles in our health. So that list was was essentially devised on on, on what research we've got showing of certain species in those different categories of those beneficial species, of the pathobionts, and then the pathogens as well. Um, and looking at the normal amounts in sort of healthy people and then using that as a bit of a framework with some of the, the newer tech tests we're coming out giving giving percentages about, you know, um, with individual patients and is really trying to devise a framework of going, okay, well, what's normal? Where things, where should things be? And then um, how do we change, change that as well? You know, and, and that list I'd say will be expanding <laughs> over the years because we're learning more about the ecosystem. We're finding new species and we're defining what some of the species that we've found five years ago are doing and what role they're playing and how to shift things too, because mm. you know, that's the other aspect too, that sometimes we're finding research going, oh, well, Ostilospora is linked to higher amounts with this disease state. And like, well, how do we adjust, adjust that? I mean, some of the stuff we just don't know yet, you know? So as someone who's been in the field for 20 years, it's like, God, we know a lot, but <laughs> there's still so much more to learn. Um, and we go fast forward 20 years from now and like, We'll go, you know, we just didn't know much 20 years ago, but it's just that that expansion of, of, of our knowledge base. And, and because research is, is accelerating it dramatically now, where, you know, as I said before, you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, there was only a couple of handfuls of, of microbiome-focused uh, researchers around the world. And now there are thousands and thousands of, of them, and we're using much better technology. So that's why the knowledge is expanding so much. And uh, as I said, that list will be ever-growing as we learn more about different disease associations and learn more about how to modify those specific populations. Gotcha. So are any of these bacteria, would you say, are more important than another or that somebody should focus on? I mean, I think there, there is some disease-specific information there and in that we know that acromanzia mucinophilia, for example, or acromanzia on that list is important for um, metabolic health. Uh, it plays a role with obesity, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome for example, and just gut integrity in general. So it's a species that we really focus on and if anyone comes with those sort of background disease states, which is common <laughs> in, in Westerners, you know, having metabolic dysfunction, um, having a, a, a leaky small bowel, you know, intestinal hyperpermeability is actually really common when we test for it uh, and as a contributing factor. So if we can focus on those species that promote healing of the gut, that's a really key part of the healing process. And acromanzi is key there. Bifidobacteria is key, is key. And, and then the range of B-trait-producing bacteria. And the B-trait-producing bacteria are ones that people are probably less familiar with because they've only um, come into the limelight more recently. But that would be species like Fecalobacterium, uh, Eubacterium, Blotia, uh, Subdola granulum, Anaerostipes, uh, Roseburia. Hmm are a few examples of those that, that we focus on improving their levels um, to, to, again, promote a uh, normal sort of colonic function or to decrease inflammation in the colon. And that we're, we're a condition like um, inflammatory bowel disease, like ulcerative colitis, or a condition like irritable bowel syndrome, where they have a degree of, of inflammation in the colon that's more low grade than a typical inflammatory bowel disease scenario, we will use those, well, I will use those B-trait producing bacteria to my advantage. As a, as a clinician, I will feed up and nurture those B-trait producing bacteria because they produce butrate. And that butrate has a, a healing anti-inflammatory effect in the colon. And it's a key part of my approach to, to those treating those diseases. Okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned the acromancia because I've kind of been on 
my own personal quest to try and increase those in my own uh, microbiome because okay. I, have, I have low levels. Um, and I've, I've used cranberry. I've used pomegranate. Uh, I actually took an Acromancia probiotic, one made by this company called Pendulum. Um, ah, yes, that's new. Yeah. Exciting. It's like the, the first new generation probiotic, so it's the first of many exciting products to come. So I think, and I think doing all that, my levels have gone from like zero to like 0.05% or something like that. I mean, they've, they've gone okay. up, but, but barely anything. So what do you usually do for your patients for Ackermansia? Ackermansia is, is usually immensely responsive to inulin FOS. And most most of the time, responsive to lactulose, and those are, are two very key uh, important prebiotic compounds. So, inulin FOS is a natural indigestible oligosaccharide, which just means like a, a, a slightly larger sugar um, that we find in things like dandelion roots and burdock roots and chicory, asparagus, a little bit in wheat and rye and barley as well. Bananas have a small amount. Onions and garlic have got better amounts, but this this compound is particularly adept at feeding up acromansia. So it's it's my go-to in that case. Um, and lactulose works in about 80% of people, not 100%. I think there's some acromansia strains that lack the metabolic capacity to digest lactulose, uh, but most do. But inulin FOS works on like 99.9% of the time. The only challenge can be that it, it does produce gas, inulin FOS. So for people that have slow transit time or um, inflamed nerves in their gut, that gas production can cause bloating, distension, pain, um, as well as, as just flattest. So for, when your gut's working well, you'll just fart more. <laughs> Generally, the, the flattest will be less smelly than the normal, more voluminous, potentially louder, but less smelly. <laughs> so that's all good. Um, and it's usually just the first one to two weeks that you're taking it that you really experience that. But it's when people have a degree of dysfunction um, in their gut or a degree of, of inflammation in their gut, they can actually get much more symptoms that impact their quality of life far more so than just higher flatus. And in those populations, we sometimes have to use some of the, the less effective tools like the cranberry powder, for example, or, or other red polyphenols that do have an impact, but not nearly as dramatic as what you get with inulin FOS. Wow, that's really interesting. I got to try inulin FOS then. Yeah, and essentially we call it inulin FOS, but the proper name is oligofructose-enriched inulin. <laughs> I just say inulin FOS because it heats quicker, but it's essentially a combination of equal parts inulin, which is a long-chain fructo-oligosaccharide, and then oligofructose, which is a short-chain fructo-oligosaccharide, and they just put equal parts together, and that has the, the greater capacity to nurture a range of bifidobacteria species, but also acromantia. Gotcha. So it, it sounds like you almost have really targeted approaches for certain bacteria to raise certain bacteria to lower certain bacteria. Is yep. So what probiotics do you use and, and, and you know, which, which strains are you targeting? I mean, this is probably a, kind of a broad question, uh, but yeah, what, what probiotics do you really focus on? Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think there's a misnomer around probiotics having a huge impact on, on, on that gut ecosystem and they don't <laughs> not when compared to to prebiotics or changes in diet or polyphenols they have a much greater impact on shifting levels of pathobionts up or down or uh, feeding up beneficial bacteria up, up for example um, however i do use probiotics lots in practice because they do have um, 
again, I'm using them in a very targeted way. It's not just like, oh, here, takes this probiotic because it might do something. It's like, it's, no, it's those, those ones that specifically enhance immune response and decrease your risk of respiratory tract infections. I'll use those ones when I'm working with, with you know, someone who works in a daycare center or, you know, a teacher at school and, and they're worried about getting respiratory tract infection. Okay, we have certain strains that clinical trials show enhance immunity and make it less likely for you to get sick both gut infections, but importantly, respiratory tract infections. Um, there's other strains that protect against rotavirus diarrhea. Um, so again, in those similar populations, we'll use those strains. There's other probiotic strains that speed up that colon transit time. So those patients that have slow transit time or constipation, I'll use the strains that speed that along and can actually make a huge difference to how they those patients feel. Um, there's others that, that can actually enhance mood and decrease anxiety. You know, so I, I really use the, the, the clinical trial evidence to guide my probiotic prescribing. So I'm not really just going, I'm going to take this multi-strain 500 billion preparation. I don't do that. It's very much targeted to going, hey, here's what's wrong, physiologically speaking. Here's a probiotic strain that can impact that specific pathway and improve things. And that's how I'm using probiotics in my practice. Gotcha. So do you think it's a good idea for someone to just go to the store and, you know, find one of those multi-strain, you know, 100 billion probiotics and, and start taking it? I generally advise against that. I mean, I think you're, you're, if you're willing to, to influence the microbiome in a very positive way, which is why many people are doing that, you're better off just changing the way you eat um, and, and encouraging the growth of species that you want more of and that it is really is their populations are dictated by what you eat are you feeding those species that you want are you feeding the species you don't want you know it's getting that sort of knowledge so you can actually make the right decisions from a dietary perspective you know prebiotics i'm, I'm much more happy as a as a daily supplement because the prebiotics like inulin fos and lactulose they increase you know, there's research showing that they improve immunity as well. So decrease your risk of developing respiratory tract infections or gut infections. They increase your absorption of things like magnesium and calcium. Um, you know, there's research showing that they could decrease the sort of precursors of, of uh, or, or creators of compounds that are can be created in the gut that, that lead to things like colorectal cancer. Um, and they generally can have an, an effect on well-being in your stress response, you know. Um, and for me, that makes much more sense of going, okay, well, I take prebiotics daily, for example, and I choose my the foods that I eat very much thinking about what species am I feeding with this food. I'm sure. making sure I'm, I'm growing my inner garden by my, my food choices, you know. And, and this is really important when you think of the fact that you might be you as a as a human are are mostly microbes, and people are debating about how much microbe you are. You might be ninety percent microbe, ten percent not, or sixty percent microbe, or fifty percent microbe. There's still discussions around that, but you are mostly microbe, and and I think it's immensely important that our food choices are based on how we nurture those sort of non-human or you know the or the microbe cells, because I think sometimes that that has really been neglected in the, the traditional you know nutrition dietetic field where like all focusing on what feeds the human cells not so much on what nurtures you know the microbe cells which we know are 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 absolutely key to our you know short-term and long-term health goals is making sure that we're feeding the right species with our food choices yeah that, that's really interesting so what do you think of the fermented foods out there like sauerkraut or i've even heard of you know, people doing this carnivore diet, eating like rotten meat for a probiotic. So what, what do you think about that? Um, 
And I, I think the thing about those food ferments is that they're wild ferments. You don't know what species or what strains you're getting. Sometimes you generally have an idea that, like with sauerkraut, generally the end species, the, the sort of um, – uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. My brain is slipping in terms of the right term for it from an ecological perspective. But the um, mm. the end species there is usually Lactobacillus plantarum. But there's a range of different strains of L. plantarum. Um, and, and how much is actually there can differ. Uh, and I was giving a, a lecture just a few days back talking around um, kefir and kombucha and you know if you grow it at 20 degrees celsius you get different species growing than if you grow it at 30 degrees celsius if you grow it on green tea versus black tea you get different species composition different fungal composition you know it's just so variable that i don't think we can rely on it as a therapeutic tool i'm quite happy to consume it and, and suggest people can yes fine have some um and you'll get a temporary boost in species richness because you're going to be treating you might be consuming you know t 10 or 12 different species in that glass of kombucha or that you know bowl of sour Crowd. Um, but they're certainly not permanently colonizing your gut. They're having minimal impact on, on you know, species um, populations when consumed, but they are sort of adding to your total whilst you consume them in terms of how many species are present in your gut. Uh, they do make food taste good <laughs> and that diversity of flavor and improved nutritional content. So I think there's good reasons to use fermentative microbes um, to do some work for us and to consume them as well. And at the very least, we tend to research shows that, that even if they die in the stomach, the sort of dead bacterial bits tend to enhance immune response. You know, and, and you could argue from our uh, evolutionary perspective, we've always been e e eating dead microbes probably in far greater amounts, or, or live or dead, but the microbes in far greater amounts than what we we do now. So it might you know, more match our evolutionary biology to have some mi microbes on a daily basis because our food supply tends to be much more sterile now. We're not having dirt on our foods, for example. Um, we're washing everything in chlorinated water. Yeah, and our produce is often sprayed with chlorinated water in the supermarkets too. So you know, we're, we're missing the microbes that would often be on those foods um, in a much more natural environment. But I think there's been far too much focus on the importance of fermented foods and far less on fermentable foods. And, and I would say that the, and what the research shows us is you get far more dramatic shifts in your gut ecosystem from having more fermentable foods. Gotcha. Yeah, it is kind of nuts, the uh, trend towards fermenting things. I was just talking with a store manager. I was, you know, in a store today and she was saying that, you know, one of these vitamin companies, basically, they're just fermenting everything. Now it's everything is fermented. Garlic is fermented, you know, vitamins are fermented. And so what you're saying is, it's not as important that you're eating something that is fermented, but that it's a food for the right bacteria in your gut. Yeah, it's uh, for me, and I think the research is clear on this, if, if you really want to make big shifts, beneficial shifts in the ecosystem, eat fermentable foods, eat lots of uh, a range of different fibers, a range of different plant polyphenols, and that will have that effect of increasing diversity, improving evenness, increasing levels of beneficial bacteria in the gut, and decreasing levels of pathobionts. It is really what we're, we're aiming for when we're shifting an ecosystem. Um, as I said, we, there's, there's things we had to, to tweak that for individual people, but that dietary approach will be far more effective than than drinking some kombucha, drinking some kefir, eating some sauerkraut. Yeah. So if you had to, uh, you know, 
make up a protocol for your average person just to maintain gut health or maintain a, a microbiome in a healthy state, what would that look like? Would it be the inulin FOS every day? Would it be, you know, maybe pulsed uses of, of fibers or, or what would that look like? I think, you know, I've touched on this already, but I'll, I'll say it more explicitly here, but it's eating mostly plant and it's, it's avoiding all processed foods. And it's having a diversity of different plant foods and a rainbow of colors. And what I, I usually suggest my patients aim for about 40 different whole plant foods per week as a just something that's achievable that makes sure they're having diversity of different fiber types. Because we often get in our heads that fiber is fiber. It's not. There's all these different hundreds of different shapes and sizes of fibers which feed different microbes. So we know that diversity is key. And how do we get a more diverse ecosystem? We feed different species and and the best way of doing that is with a range of different dietary fiber types. So, you know, I suggest patients have black rice, red rice, brown rice, rather than just focusing on brown rice, for example, and have red quinoa, um, black quinoa, rather than just having white quinoa. Um, they use a, a variety of different, you know, apples, and a variety of different um, foodstuffs all, all together because the different color compounds, the different, slightly different fiber shapes in those different foods um, will, will essentially feed a wider range of microbes in the gut. So to me, that's the core aspect of it. But we'll complement that by taking things like inulin FOS, because uh, even just you know one teaspoon a day, which is around three grams, that's a minimum therapeutic dose, and that will help make sure that your acromanzi and bifidobacteria are at, at a healthy population, um, that your fecalobacterium, a, a key butyrate-producing bacteria in the gut, is in a healthy population. And and also, as I said, you get the, the added benefit of... Um, increased absorption of calcium magnesium so enhanced nutritional status uh, on top as well as improved immune response on top of that so that's a nice addition to that the general aspect of eating mostly plants wide diversity and a rainbow of colors and because the colors are important because it's the polyphenols in black rice and eggplant skin in you know raspberries blueberry skins that tend to nurture a wide range of beneficial bacteria in the gut as well gotcha uh, so humans have these two, you know, large groups of bacteria in their gut, uh, the Firmicutes and the Bacteroides. And there's been a lot of studies that, you know, look at different ratios of those and say one is better than the other. Do you think that ratio is important? No, <laughs> I'd say I'd say not. And I think there's been some papers at at certain time points, like there was a really pivotal publication. I think it was 2005, 2006, that was the first one that linked microbiota to metabolic health and obesity. You know, it was absolutely mind-blowing publication because it really blew our minds about the importance of the gut ecosystem, and that it was far more than just gut disease that was impacted. Um, and in that paper, they talked about a, a higher bacteroidetes to formicutes ratio being important. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of this information came from was that pivotal paper that made headlines around the world for good reason because it was a very pivotal paper. However, there's just been a number of studies done even in, in that obesity metabolic field that have found different results since then, finding that maybe actually, no, it's more important to have more formicides than it is bacteroidetes or that the ratio is completely irrelevant. That that has really um, cast shade, I suppose, on, on the importance of that particular ratio. So it's certainly something I keep in mind, more, more so in terms of the of the level of, of formicides because all of our butyrate, almost all of our butyrate producing bacteria are in the formicides phyla. Um, and there's a lot of pro-inflammatory species in the Bacteroidetes phyla. And in some some patient populations, um, levels of Bacteroides or Prevotella, which are the two key um, genera found in that Bacteroidetes phyla, 
um, are, are really high and are problematic. So, you know, it's certainly something I've, I look at, but I, I don't think that that exact ratio is nearly as important. Um, and I think it's really the composition of those phyla that actually are, is more important in terms of, um, but as I said, if you have like 80% bacteroides in your gut ecosystem, that's going to make your bacteroidetes at least 80%. Probably more, slightly more than that, um, and that's problematic. <laughs> you know, having eighty percent of, of a single species dominating, but particularly things like Bacteroides or um, or Prevotella at, at such high amounts. And those are the two genera I've, I've only ever seen that that dominates so dramatically in certain people's ecosystems. In which case, we do certainly want to to, to change that that ratio, but we're, we're looking more at the genus level rather than at the the phyla level. You know, and I think perhaps. Uh, a phyla that I think is, is actually really key for a range of disease states is, is proteobacteria. And it doesn't get nearly talked about as much as it should. But proteobacteria um, is usually the number third or fourth highest um, phyla in people's guts, but it can be can be number one in, in certain dysbiotic states. Um, but one thing that all proteobacteria have in common is their production of a compound called endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide and a much more potent version of it. In all gram-negative bacteria produce endotoxin, but proteobacteria produce a much more potent pro-inflammatory endotoxin. And there's a growing body of literature linking that this production of, of endotoxin in the gut to things like chronic kidney disease, fatty liver, depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, um, you know, a whole wide range of you know, autoimmune diseases gut damage is more specifically as well in terms of you know causing more int increased intestinal permeability all being linked into this this over release of endotoxin in the gut by having different high levels of proteobacteria in the gut and i think we'll find in the coming years there's going to be more and more discussion around that particular phylum yeah that's really interesting about the the endotoxin um because that's been something i've read about quite a bit and it's it's one of the only things I think that if you actually inject it into people, it can give them type two diabetes. Like it's it just causes a cascade of of bad things uh, that can happen to you. Yep. And and yeah, and you can give it you can give an injection to someone who's healthy and happy, and they get depressed and anxious for about five hours afterwards. Yeah. Well, that, that's one thing I heard about the Firmicutes and Bactroides is that the Bactroides have a lot more endotoxin than the Firmicutes. Correct. Firmicutes have got none, but but bacteroides are, are all gram negative, and they all are releasing that endotoxin all the time, um, and that's where I think the overall amount—not necessarily the ratio of firmicutes to bacteroides, but the overall amount of bacteroides, bacteroidetes, sorry—can be problematic and certainly an inflammatory driver. And and I do see that quite commonly in patients. Yeah, I mean, my own personal uh, testimony is I I tested my microbiome back in January, and I did some different protocols and. I went from maybe 65 to 70% Bactroides down to 30 to 35%. And I've had oh, wow. a lot okay. of health benefits from that. Uh, so Yeah, I reckon you would. Because <laughs> you're getting a lot of endotoxin being released. If you're like 7 out of every 10 bacteria in your gut is gram negative, you are they're constantly dying and you know releasing the endotoxin into your gut. And that is a... Dramatic pro-inflammatory driver, um, both in the gut, but but body-wise as well. Yeah, how does somebody get to that state? Like, how does how does somebody get to that state where they have such an inflammatory gut? I mean, is it a diet thing that they're doing? Is it influenced by their lifestyle? Diet, lifestyle, and medications. 
those are the, the, the core drivers of, of, of those sort of changes in the gut ecosystem. You know, uh, Bacteroides, which is often the, the, the key genus in those situations, is, uh, I like to think of it as the omnivorous pig of the gut ecosystem. So <laughs> it eats a bit of pro- protein, it eats a bit of bile, it's a bit of sugar, it's a bit of fiber, um, you, need, you know, pretty much anything. And hence why it tends to be, you know, common in, in humans worldwide. But it, it's very dominant in Western people in Western countries eating a Western diet because they're having no fiber in general and they're having lots of protein and lots of fatty things which increase bile flow. So there's not much competition for for protein putrefaction in the gut, not much competition for bile compared to fiber. There's a dramatic competition for fiber in the gut and bacteroides is not great at eating fiber. It it is okay at it, but there's other species that are better at doing so. So when we're having more plant-based diets, we tend not to be very high in bacteroides, but if we're mostly animal-based processed food, low fiber, we tend to be very much dominated by bacteroides. And that can be dramatic where they're up to 60, 70% of what's there. But also it's key to keep in mind that antibiotics can often be a big driver of that too, that in terms of bacteria in the gut, and their antibiotic resistance, um, bacteroides has got the greatest um, repertoire of antibiotic resistant genes of all the bacteria in your gut. So it can often thrive after courses of antibiotics because um, the competition doesn't. <laughs> the competition's been smashed. Uh, bacteroides is like, yeah, I'm I'm handling this. I've got no trouble with this 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 antibiotic and now i've got more food and i've got more space i'm just going to grow into that because my competition's gone and you can get people that are 60 70 80 bacteroides post antibiotics where that was the core driver you know sort of independent of what the diet was like before um if they're able to you know if they're able to eat a predominantly plant-based whole food diet you'll see bacteroides will come down relatively rapidly because even after the antibiotics um because we're starting to feed up the competition who are more adept at eating those those plant-based compounds and fibers so do you i'm guessing you you probably don't use many antibiotics are there any that are you know useful (laughs) personally i don't use them no but obviously there's a time and place where antibiotics save lives they save limbs they save organs you know in those cases I guess it's a no-brainer that we actually use these things. Um, I mean, like for the microbiome. They are way overused, though. Yeah, no, yeah, okay. I don't think that antibiotics are often needed for microbiome-related shifts. Um, I'd say extremely seldomly needed for things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease. We can often, and, and, and and autistic spectrum disorder in conditions where we're really wanting to shift that ecosystem I think antibiotics really shouldn't play a big role and should be reserved for cases where all the, the things that are more healthful um, haven't worked. And, and I think that they seldom need to be used if we're aware and capable of using the, the other tools that we ha- that are capable that that we have not well that I have in my toolkit that will generally be able to shift the ecosystem pretty dramatically without the use and in a positive ways without the use of agents like antibiotics. Okay. So we only got about uh, 10 minutes left or so. So I just had a couple questions uh, that are kind of broad, but what do you believe about the microbiome that, you know, maybe other people in your field would call controversial or, you know, maybe even, maybe even dangerous? Mm. I would like to think nothing. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's that's as someone that's like been researching this area and is a researcher in this area for 20 years i'd like to think that and i also you know teach evidence-based medicine here at the university of tasmania that my approach is very much based on 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 research you know so i I would like to say probably not much i'm certainly not not dangerous so much um there's going to be some some you know, as I mentioned before, that there, there's some people that are still, you know, happy arguing about what the healthy ecosystem is. And I suppose, and those people are seldom clinicians. <laughs> like, we don't know enough about the gut ecosystem yet. We don't know enough to change anything. Um, but those of us in the ground are like, well, I think we know enough <laughs> to, to start making some positive positive changes. And you can see it, you know, when you bring down that, that little 80% back to what he's down to like 15, 20%, and you bring up bifidobacteria, and you see the difference in your patients and their metabolic parameters or their, their mood, anxiety, depression goes away. It's just like, yeah, I mean, I, we need more research and, you know, I'm totally for that. But um, I think for things that are actually safe, have extremely low side effect profile, if any, um, I'm quite happy to to use them in, in practice. You know, I think when, when agents have a high risk of causing harm and side effects, we need really good evidence, you know, beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is yeah. super effective, you know. But when it's like, okay, eat more Mediterranean-style diet, eat more, <laughs> more plant foods, um, eat more, you know, things like that, you're not going to cause... For, you know, as I said, be, bar the the exceptional person that you have to go a bit more slowly with it because it's going to cause symptomatic changes that are that are problematic for them. But broadly speaking, that approach is not going to cause harm and actually going to improve so many aspects of their life that I don't think we need to be cautious and and worry that there aren't quite enough clinical trials yet showing that that you know is is um because I think there is, but there's always going to be that that spread of of how much evidence is enough evidence for for people to be happy with any intervention. You know, and that's an ongoing discussion. How long is a piece of string? It's like there's going to be differing opinions about how much evidence is required before um, certain recommendations are made. Um, for me, you know, when it comes to use of, of probiotics, a couple of human clinical trials is enough. But for someone else, they might want 20 clinical trials with 20,000 people enrolled with every study before they're ever going to, to, to implement that in their, their practice for their patients. Um, you know, um, so that I think there's that in the background. Yeah. As well. I, I always think, uh, you know, when people need that much evidence, I think, you know, have you ever really been sick? Like, have you ever been desperate? Like, you, you know, you, you just got to take a chance sometimes when you have a little bit of evidence. Yeah. And, and I do think that often those people that, that are, you know, because I'm still shocked when I read stuff that comes from gastroenterology conferences, primarily US based, that there's no evidence that probiotics work. And I'm like, <laughs> just like shocked that someone can actually say that you know because I've, I've got a database that's got like hundreds of clinical trials showing that they work for certain conditions and it's just like man you have really selectively chosen your evidence or you've got this standard of evidence so high that, that almost nothing would meet it but you're probably prescribing pharmaceutical medications that don't meet that standard that you have for probiotics <laughs> quite fine you know, it's like, you've, like there's often this double standard that comes from some some people who are in that sort of not enough evidence is, is is there currently that they're they're quite happy to prescribe pharmaceuticals with a much lower level of evidence than they are for prescribing probiotics or prebiotics or a change in diet um, that has much you know because um, the, the their bar is quite different. Yeah. So do you ever hear any advice about the microbiome out there from you know social media or other practitioners that you think, man, that's just bad advice? <sighs> I've got a lot of caution around 
some of the trends towards like a carnivore diet or ketogenic diet, more broadly speaking, um, because I see the impact of the ecosystem from people following those sort of dietary approaches. And it's not beneficial shifts that we're seeing. We're seeing, um, and you'd expect if you understand the workings of the microbiome, you stop feeding species, they stop living and their population goes down, you know? Um, and that's what happens if we stop eating grains, we stop eating legumes, we stop eating fruit, we stop eating fiber, you you starve off the species that actually produce short-chain fatty acids for the most part, and you starve off your butyrate-producing bacteria, you know, and, and our our guts have evolved alongside these species, and eating, you know, 100 grams of fiber plus per day for, for thousands of years, you know, and we've got this pivotal relationship, particularly with those butyrate-producing bacteria. I mean, many people don't know, but your, your colon cells, your large intestinal cells, like 70 80% of their energy needs are met through the production of butyrate by your clonic bacteria and other short-chain fatty acids, but primarily butyrate. You take that away, your colonocytes do not function properly. You know, they, 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 we've evolved this relationship there. Um, so so those sort of extreme diets, and, and not to say that there, there may be, well be a time and place for ketogenic-type diets in, in um, epilepsy, for example, but I think in those cases, how can we um, support that ecosystem and the bugs we want to survive while they go through that, follow that diet, you know, so like a non-responsive epileptic child, maybe, maybe the ketogenic diet is something that's going to be very helpful for, for their quality of life and improve their epilepsy. But how can we use prebiotics, dietary fiber supplements to prevent the, um, short-term and, and long-term damage that's going to occur to that ecosystem from following that diet? Long term, so I think you need to have knowledge and awareness of the negative repercussions of those interventions to be aware of how we can try to prevent that yeah. from occurring. And, and there's plenty of research that you know done by the the Sonnenbergs in California showing that you know that fiber depleted diet causes extinctions, and then that those extinctions essentially get passed on to the next generation, and then giving them fiber doesn't fix it because those bugs are gone. Once they're extinct, they're extinct. Unless you're willing to ingest some poo or some breast milk to get some species back. You know, and, and th those are the things that, that um, you see as outcomes for people that follow those diets for longer periods of time, not just a short-term dip in populations, but actually extinction-level events that are not easy to come back from. Wow. Those are my worries. Yeah. So last question I have is, are there any... Uh, patient recovery stories that you have that you think are worth sharing? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> potentially a few. Um, I mean, you can think think of a case of a young lad, like probably around 12. Um, it's been a little while since I've seen them, so that the age might be a little bit off, but around that age, um, presented with acute ulcerative colitis um, that was not responsive to all the medications they were on. They were already on biologics and they were on steroids and they were on vancomycin and, you know, everything that could be thrown at them was being thrown at this child. And he was still having, you know, 10 bloody bowel movements a day. And um, they said, you know, surgery, we have to remove his colon. That was where it's at. And the, and the mom, you know, parents came to me wanting you know, one last chance. Is there a way we can stop? Yeah. You know, we don't want to have the colon removed at this point in time. Is there anything else we can do? And and I started working with that 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 patient, and then you know, and just see that that the, it completely changes. And all of a sudden, they're doing two bowel movements per day, and no blood, and no mucus, and their calprotectin, which is a marker of you know colonic inflammation, has gone from like two thousand down two hundred. You know, it's been like this massive massive shift, and that was through essentially more more plant 
foods, more plant fibers, prebiotic supplements, and some herbal medicines too that were decreasing inflammation more directly. But that shift in the ecosystem um, was important. And and even though it was, it was slightly harder in this case because they, they were constantly taking vancomycin, um, which is a, an antibiotic, which has a pretty dramatic impact on the gut. So it, it was, this was actually a fascinating case because um, having a look at their this child this guy's gut on vancomycin like normally there might be 100 160 species present in the gut and this one had like 20 wow. um and there was no formicutes no bacteroidetes most of it was proteobacteria <laughs> i was what was surviving the, the vancomycin and it was it was a, the worst ecosystem i've ever seen um but even in that situation implementing the the, the diet and supplementary regime actually made a dramatic difference to their state of health and their also colitis and they don't they're not needing to get the colon removed now you know um and that i think that's a a lovely example of the power of microbiome modification in a, even in a severe disease state. Wow, that that is a great story to end on. So if people want to access your content or work with you, how can they do that? Yeah, so I've got a a website called Probiotic Advisor, and we've got an evidence-based database, which is around how to use probiotics well uh, and and an evidence-based manner easily. Um, And then I've got a range of courses on there, mostly for health professionals, um, because I've been training health professionals for about 19 years. So that's my one of my passions. But there's also some lectures on there for for the general public too about learning more about the microbiome like we have a meet your microbiome course for example that tends to teach people about um how to make their ecosystem healthier you know what what are the good beneficial bacteria what are the pathobionts where the pathogens and how do we can modify that through through choices with prebiotics and dietary factors for example um and then i'm also a clinician at, at my clinic here at in Howard called gould's natural medicine um and i these days i'm seeing exclusively <laughs> Gut, gut conditions, which is good because it's that thing that, you know, maybe I was lucky that my first few years were, you know, half gut, half general. So you get you get a lot of, of experience treating a wide range of conditions. But certainly the last decade has been like predominantly gut related conditions. And do you work with people over Zoom or Skype? Yes. Yeah. I'd say 95% of my patient load is is distant from Hobart <laughs> all over the world. Gotcha. Yes. And so if people want to work with you, they just go to your website and they can find you there? Yeah. Yeah. Gould's Natural Medicine in Hobart is my, my clinic website. And then Probiotic Advisor is my sort of more educational website. Okay. Is there anything new coming up for you, like a new book or anything like that? Much of the same, actually. <laughs> I'm keeping, keeping working, doing some research, some interesting research studies, and um, seeing patients, and still, you know, educating practitioners. So, you know, I'm working on releasing a course on um, modifying the microbiota in kids on the autistic spectrum. That's probably going to be my next next course. It's going to come up on my website. So that's probably the the next new thing that will be occurring. All right. Well. Thank you so much, doctor. I really appreciate you coming on. I I totally got a lot out of this interview. So um, I really appreciate you uh, making the time. You're very welcome, Lucas. Yeah, it was a great chat. Happy to be here. So what an interview. I just got so much out of this interview. Uh, I I really feel like, you know, after what he said, I'm at the point where I understand the microbiome enough now um, that I know the general direction that the microbiome should go. Uh, now, obviously, there's always caveats and everybody's a little different, but I think I have a good handle on that. So let me explain. Most of the software used to evaluate your microbiome 
it's always looking at averages versus the population. So, you know, if a bacteria is below average, they give you recommendations to bring it up. And if it's above average, they give you recommendations to bring it down. But this interview gave what I think is a really solid foundation for how to treat and manipulate the microbiome. So the first part of that is uh, when I asked him about the Firmicutes versus Bactroides ratio. It was actually kind of strange because when I asked him, you know, if the ratio of those two mattered, he said not really. But then he went on to say that, you know, having too many Bactroides can be problematic. If you remember, I said I had lowered my Bactroides from uh, 70% to 35%, which uh, it's not actually accurate. I went back and looked at my microbiome tests and it was actually uh, from around 60% to 35%. So not as extreme as what I was saying. Now, the reason that the Bactroides were problematic was because of the lipopolysaccharide or endotoxin uh, that they release when they die or, or they make or whatnot. Now, now very, very smart people and quite a few of them will say that endotoxin is one of the reasons that your health takes a turn for the worse. It's, it's just one of the worst things for you. And like I said in the interview, you know, it's one of the only things that you can inject into somebody and just straight give them diabetes. Or I think he mentioned uh, depression or something like that for six hours after, after it's injected into somebody. And not only that, like a big part of Ray Pete's work is devoted to talking about how bad endotoxin is. So, so lowering this stuff is really on the radar for just a lot of cutting edge, uh, you know, nutritionists and doctors and, and health bloggers. It's just, it's kind of one of those things that didn't get enough attention back when it was discovered. And now people are saying, wait, maybe this is really bad. So endotoxin is just one of the bad guys in aging. And, and that is just being rediscovered over and over again. But anyway, at one point in the interview, Dr. Horlick he says that getting his patients down to around 15% Bactroides was part of what he did. On the other side of the ratio, the Firmicutes, they're not gram-negative bacteria, and they don't have any endotoxin. So it seems to me that skewing the Firmicutes to Bactroides ratio towards Firmicutes will lower the amount of endotoxin you are exposed to. That That just makes sense. Now, this is a huge deal because... There are tons of people who, you know, poo-poo on the probiotics and and gut bacteria because they say, you know, all of that stuff just raises endotoxin. And so you should just try and have as few bacteria as possible. But if Firmicutes doesn't even have endotoxin and you can skew your gut bacteria in a way that minimizes this endotoxin, I mean, that should help all kinds of inflammatory conditions, diabetes, you know, you name it. Now, this is just, you know, my conjecture. And there is the caveat that uh, Bactroides has some helpful bacteria, so you don't want to eliminate them completely. Uh, You know, maybe just have them around 10 to 20%, like he said. Now, something else he said uh, that I I personally experienced, uh, when I was using antibiotics earlier this year, you might remember, you know, I experimented with with three different ones, uh, zithromycin and a couple others. Um, So my Bactroides went from around 45% to 60% while on the antibiotics. And then it went down to 35%, which is what we were talking about in the interview. So when he said that antibiotics tend to raise Bactroides, that's definitely true from my experience. 
Now, this also puts a lot of question marks around people who use antibiotics to lower endotoxin. I mean, it may be beneficial in the short term by lowering just the sheer amount of bacteria, but in the long term, you're promoting Bactroides over Firmicutes, and theoretically, that could raise endotoxin. And this also explains why some people feel so much better on antibiotics while on them, but then when they get off them, they just, they feel so much worse, you know? So what this tells me is if you are on antibiotics, uh, you want to do several things. So after you go on them, you know, you want to take some inulin, FOS, or other prebiotics. Uh, you may also want to take things that specifically target and inhibit Bactroides, uh, like pomegranate, uh, garlic, chitosan, uh, the probiotic lactobacillus ruteri, uh, ruteri, however you say that. Actually, uh, I went on Ken's site and I looked up, you know, what would lower Bactroides, and those were just a few of the, the top ones that popped up. Now, Dr. Harlech also mentioned uh, proteobacteria as giving off quite potent form of endotoxin, uh, even stronger than Bactroides. It was really hard to find substances that inhibited proteobacteria, but one I did find was the herb burdock root. So, you know, that might be uh, worth experimenting with. Uh, a couple other things I thought were interesting. Uh, inulin FOS raises acromancia 99.9% .9 of the time. You know, Acromancia is important because usually people who have adequate levels of acromancia have less leaky gut and they tend to be thinner. This is something that everybody with any kind of chronic condition or just, you know, looking to lose weight, this is what they want to achieve. So anything that raises acromancia is a good thing. Now, you know, uh, assuming they don't have overgrowth levels. Now, nowhere on the net does it say that taking inulin FOS really helps acromancia which is why, you know, talking to a guy like Jason, it's just so useful, you know, somebody who's in the clinical setting and he's used these things. I mean, everything online says on Acromancia, you know, take cranberry, take pomegranate, and those kind of work, like you said, they, they're okay, but this inulin FOS is, is apparently, you know, magic. Uh, I also thought it was interesting when he said that he did not find probiotics and fermented foods really all that helpful, broadly speaking, at influencing the microbiome you know he said he would uh he would use uh, targeted probiotics for certain things certainly uh, but that he found prebiotics and polyphenols from different fruits and veggies more important i thought that was really uh, really interesting uh what else oh i will put the list of bacteria that he says is important uh i will put that in the show notes uh, that that list where I started to read it and then I realized that the words were way too difficult so I just kind of stopped and skipped it yeah I'm going to put that list in the the show notes um, so you can look and, and it says what the bacteria's name is and it says the range that you should have on your your microbiome so it's it's pretty useful so really to sum up um, his his usual protocol is to bring bacteroides down to around 15 to 20 percent to bring bifidobacteria up and to increase diversity with different polyphenols found in a variety of different foods. So listening to the, the whole interview, that's basically the sum up that I got. Uh, he has that list of bacteria and their optimal levels if you want to really dive deep. And I know many of you have not really taken the step of actually having your microbiome tested. And, and I get that. I mean, it's it's a lot of money. Um, and you know, who knows whether manipulating it is, is actually helpful or not, but 
you know, Thrive, they often have sales where you can buy a kit for 80 bucks. Um, so it, it might be worth it if you are struggling in some way. And given how this direction is seems very clear now of where you want to get to, it might, it might be worth it. So anyways, uh, that's it for me. Um, I'm also, just to let you know, I'm, I'm working on getting the episodes up on YouTube for easier listening. I think I found a very good solution that will make that very easily and not very expensive. So uh, that should hopefully be up here soon for anybody who wants to listen on that. It's, it's not going to be a video of me talking or anything like that, but you know, whatever. Uh, if some people like to listen to things on YouTube, if you do want to support the show and you know, you get useful information from it, you, you enjoy it. All I ask is that you share the show with others. That would be great. Uh, thank you so much for listening. 